The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. This morning, we've come to the 11th major section of the book of James, the 11th of 14 major sections of this letter. So it's been a a substantial journey so far, and I'm a little bit uh, nostalgic for different elements of it. So when we cover when I reference, oh, we've been here and, and we've seen, and as we'll do today, where we talk about the rich and poor, and we say, oh, we see, we saw that in chapter one, we saw that in chapter two. For me, that's uh, that experience is like when your phone has a, a photo memory, Facebook, Google Photos, whatever. It's like, oh, I remember that. That was so precious, and it it, it was valuable then, but oh, now it really is valuable, and and that's part of the experience of walking through a book over a, a prolonged period of time as you get to master it in different ways and the relationship and engagement of it uh, becomes uh, more refined over time. So this is now again the 11th the 14th ma- of the 14th major sections and it's really um, unique in the sense that it's probably the most intensive of the uh, 14 sections in terms of its rebuke. It's the most direct and firm rebuke. So James given correction at different points in time, but this is a very different kind of correction. And we're going to see that as we work through our study today. And this is really fitting because while James was also plainly writing to dispersed believers, we recognize his audience. It comes through a little bit today as well with the uh, the Lord of Sabaoth and, and other kind of inferences and titles and language. He was writing to Jewish believers, primarily Jewish believers. There may have been um, early Gentile believers or uh, early proselytes at that point in time, but it was primarily uh, dispersed Jewish believers. But here he does something very different. He doesn't do anywhere else in the book. He turns his attention to those who are not only outside of the fellowship, but are those who are, or should I say, will be consumed by their riches of this world, not because they, um, not before, excuse me, before, uh, because, okay, here we go, because they have found an affection for the riches of this world and they've done harm to Christ's beloved. And so again, James is a particular point of concern here. He's ministered to within the church, but now again, turned his attention to those who are outside who have loved the things of this world and have loved them in such a way as to do harm to Christ's beloved. Now, it's a serious accusation to charge someone as being outside of the faith. Uh, sometimes people will ask you in casual conversation about somebody you care about or a mutual friend, are they a Christian or are they a believer? Sometimes the best we can do is say, I don't know. I mean, they, 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 they give some God talk every so often or they, they, they seem to be very uh, conservative in their approach to life and family, but I don't know. But to outright say, no, they're not a believer, well, that's a bit of a weightier charge. And to, so to accuse or to identify someone as being outside, let me get us caught up here, outside of the faith, that's a pretty significant matter. And it's a significant decision also to say that James has been and will hereafter be writing to and engaging believers, but for one reason or another breaks from this and engages those under imminent judgment of God. So now it's a big deal to say, mm, I don't think they're a believer. And it's also a big deal so that's relationally. Now, expositionally, it's a big deal to say, eh, he broke, broke from the pattern he's maintained throughout the whole book through 10 sections. Now he's done something different, and then he's going to go back to that pattern. Well, okay, well, that's a big question mark. Why? What's, why would he have done that? Does that just suit your conclusions with rich and poor? Or, Well, I think we have a good case for the fact that he did break. So he's breaking to say they're unbelievers, and he's breaking from the pattern of direct address to believers. So let me lay out two clear reasons for this conclusion as it informs really the whole of our time in this passage. So first, I would say if you look at this passage, uh, 5, 1 through 6, you're going to see no path to repentance. That's really important because every time that James is corrected, every time he's rebuked, there's been some form of restoration. There's been some form of this is uh, the counterbalance, this is the wisdom from below, or this is folly, or this is... Uh, the, the double-minded man, or this is the unwise, but this is what you ought to do. We don't have that here. There's, there's no counterpart. There's no repentance. There's no restoration. Everything James says in this engagement of these persons is all and only certain judgment. He doesn't even say, well, there's judgment if it's judgment. It's It's condemnation. And James's one true command here is bound up in judgment. So the command to cry, howling over their miseries which are coming upon them. That's not, 
cry out and, you know, pursue repentance. Just cry. Your miseries are coming. And that's not the nature of how one engages a believer. And we've plainly seen this throughout our study when James does offer a firm word or corrective rebuke. It is with a view to repentance, to restoration, to greater maturity, because that's how we engage the church. But here, it's sure condemnation. Second, we have a clear pattern of how James has spoken of the rich throughout this letter. And while the first engagement lent itself toward a possible expression of repentance by way of boasting in one's humiliation, the second and now third engagements are unambiguous as to the standing of the rich and consequently their outcome. So we first have chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position. By contrast, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flower and grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat, and, it's, and it withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, if you... Remember, my conviction was, I think that rich man even there was not a believer, but there was a, a gentle call with, look, this is the trajectory of your own. It's not a flattering outcome, but rather a clear statement regarding the end results of the pursuits of the rich man. Then you have James 2, 6 through 7. It's much, much more direct. So shortly after this, James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we read, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's speaking to the church there. You've shown favoritism. And then, is it not the rich who oppress you, and they themselves drag you into court? Did they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? Well, did you hear what James had to say of the rich there? They oppress the righteous, they drag them into court, and they blaspheme Christ. That's not who I categorically say, oh, well, you know, they're just a struggling believer. No, they oppress the righteous, drag them into court, blaspheme Christ. Their standing is quite plain, is it not? It's very clear, I would say. These are not believers, but rather they are antagonistic enemies of Christ and his beloved. Now, because we'll be working through this next major passage, I'm not going to offer any commentary just yet, but see if from just a plain reading, you don't come to the same clear conclusion that James's indictment of the unbelieving rich has amplified tremendously in our passage today. So we read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now. And this is a direct, before it was, this is about the rich. Now it's a direct address to the rich. Come now, you rich, cry howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You have stored up such treasure in the last days. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields that which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on earth and lived in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, to present, we've established two things. This is James's most intensive rebuke of the book, and this is because the rich persons that he is engaging here are antagonistic unbelievers for whom judgment is certain. But we do need to be careful here. Because while James is categorically rebuking rich persons, it's not simply on account of their socioeconomic status. It's not, well, now I'm not only in a different tax bracket, now I'm an unbeliever. No, that's not the issue. It's not because of their socioeconomic status. Rather, it's because of the nature and pursuit of their riches. These are arrogantly ignorant men who are spending themselves and trampling over others that they might be rich toward man. They have no regard for the wisdom from above or its clear call that one would seek to be rich toward God, securing an enduring inheritance that cannot be touched by the things of this world. They do not understand Jesus' parable of the rich man that we looked at last week. If you remember, we took a good bit of time and we read through it. And I said we'd look back at it. And there we saw the man who declared his series of I will statements. I will do this and I will do this. Because they don't get that. They don't even get what Jesus was instructing them on there because they don't even grasp how Jesus introduced the parable when he commanded them to exercise caution regarding riches, stating, watch out. And be in your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance 
Does his life consist of, pos of his possessions? And if you didn't get that introduction, you're probably not going to get what the parable has to say. And I would argue they don't get that. Rather, their life does consist of their possessions, or so they would seem. But they not only do not understand this, but again, but the whole of their life and consequently their judgment are bound up in their riches. As we will see in a moment, that which they have hoarded to themselves will condemn and consume them. Now, let me pause here for just a moment and once more attempt to press a point of necessary clarification. I've already stated that James is categor categorically rebuking the rich, but I've also attempted to qualify these are a particular kind of rich persons, namely those striving to be rich toward man and not rich toward God, and that's a critical distinction especially because in God's providence, he has and does generously provide in such a way that many a faithful man and woman are fiscally well off, and they steward what has been entrusted to them well. And the Lord has gifted certain persons to be able to steward more than others. But it is a challenging stewardship, and Paul speaks to this rather plainly when he's writing to Timothy. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, or set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is life and deed. So, with James's larger engagement of the rich in view, let's walk through this weightier portion of this letter now, and as we do, I want you to recognize that he has introduced this engagement for your benefit. He's exercising, I would argue, a pastoral care for his beloved brothers and is bringing us in as bystanders to his indictment of the unrighteous rich. And that is how I hope you're going to understand this inclusion of this section of the book. I want you to see it, not just because from my perspective, but I think this is what James would have us see, that this is an act of pastoral care. But... How is this an act of pastoral care? How is it uh, serving the church well to bring us into a conversation which he's rebuking this group of persons? Well, as I hope many of you recall, this passage is intentionally coupled with the conclusion of chapter 4. Remember our last section. I said this section, the last section and this one are coupled together. Both passages are uniquely introduced with come now. A coupling of the imperative come with the adverb now, making for a firm way of securing our attention. And we know that, again, when James is introducing a new section, his pattern, not all the time, his pattern is a nominative of direct address, an imperative, a change of subject. Sometimes he'll introduce with a question. So we're looking for, there's no question here, where's the imperative? Oh, there it is, it's come. But he's not saying, hey, come here. He's saying, come now. He's getting our attention, so he's taking his pattern grabbing our attention for something quite serious. He does that twice. Only two times he does it, and he does it back to back here. And what he's doing in that, what's he doing in that last section? What is the, the point of association between what came before and this? Well, he was correcting the danger of one drifting toward an arrogant ignorance. Remember the, the I will, I will, I will. No, we're not going to drift there. That's an arrogant ignorance. The, the beloved, the church, the believers, you ought not to drift that way. So he's addressing believers and restoratively correcting. It was a course of life that has become, uh, from correction from a course of life that's become overly self-oriented and self-confident, likely in view of probably having generous provisions and, and, and such, fostering that I will approach to life. And I will approach to life that fails to have a humble view to God, a kind of arrogant ignorance that's amplified among the wealthy, unbelieving community who plainly have no view to God or his purposes, which is unpacked in our text today. So what we, the church, will struggle with, it's uh, increased exponentially. It's, it's made so much worse. And the fact is they don't have the Spirit of God to govern that, to be restored with. So that's one point of connection. And this in turn yields to what? So we have the, the arrogant ignorance that we have to protect ourselves from that's amplified for one who would pursue not the things of God but the things of this world. And then what follows, which I think this is helpful to understand the point of connection, and it's namely a call to patient endurance. The kind of patient endurance that we've already seen secures the crown of life. So remember, patient endurance was part of the very beginning of the book. We haven't seen it in a while. 
it comes in very strongly here at the end of the book. Well, I think there's a point of connection there. So again, the kind of patient endurance that is a view that supersedes the temporal riches of this life and pursues the eternal. The kind of patient endurance that recognizes that while oppressed and abused by men of, mean, by men of means, also recognizes that there's a righteous judge standing at the door, and he's not only just, but he's also full of compassion and merciful. And so why does that matter? Because sandwiched between restorative correction for our own drifting and like ways comes next the rebuke to the wicked and then a final view to perseverance and, an, a, and a final view to perseverance. So what's the point of connection? You believers may be subject to those who are rich in this world, who, who love the things of this world, who are taking the believers to court. They're maligning, they're blaspheming, they're hurting. And so in view of that, James dresses them down and then says, now, beloved, you persevere. To me, that's pastoral affection. That's not just welcoming you into an awkward engagement like, oh, boy, James got really mad here. He's saying, watch yourselves, dressing them down, and now you persevere. So it's an indictment that James has brought us into to hear so we might not be only warned ourselves, but strengthened in our walk. I don't think he's interested in warning us. He's already warned us. He says, when you drift this way, there's a, what does wisdom say? What does humility say? We've got that. This section is pure rebuke, pure uh, condemnation. And again, he's introduced that for us so that when now we get to the end of the next section, we have a call to perseverance. And I've stated a few times that this passage, again, is an indictment of the unrighteous rich. But what's an indictment? I don't mean just to throw terms out there, and especially extra-biblical terms. Well, an indictment's being a, a formal charge for an offense that usually comes after the, the presentation of evidence to sustain an accusation. So here, in the state of Georgia, if someone's charged with a felony, it's usually more severe crimes, the prosecuting officer has up to 90 days after the suspect's arrested to secure an indictment by a grand jury. So if you get a subpoena in the mail, mail for jury duty, if it's for grand jury, I think grand juries are the most exciting because you hear dozens of cases and you participate in the process to see that a case advance to trial. Because what you're doing is you're weighing the evidence. Is there enough to move forward? Is the, the accusation fit the offense, the crime? And if it does, okay, we're going to bind it over to trial. Well, in a like way, to that end, the nature of the charges and an explanation of their offenses is presented again to the grand jury's jury, who will determine if there's reasonable grounds to advance the case to prosecution. And I would argue that we're seeing a like argument here by James as he presents a two-part indictment against the wicked, unrighteous, rich. The first is an indictment by way of property, and the second indictment by way of persons both being framed in the same manner. You're going to see a pattern of crying, an accusation of wicked indulgences, the indictment, and a closing rebuke. So first we have the indictment by way of uh, property. Crying. Come now, you rich, cry. Howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. Then you have the accusation of wicked indulgences. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Then comes the indictment. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. The closing rebuke, you have stored up such treasures in the last days. And now we have the indictment by way of persons. Crying, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. It's a difficult term. It's not Sabbath. It's not translated. It's just directly from the Greek transliteration there. Accusation of wicked indulgences. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in selfish indul or self-indulgence. Then the indictment. You have fattened your hearts at a day of slaughter. And then finally the closing rebuke. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, while I've proposed that there are parallels here, there are distinctions among them as well. Notably, the opening crying that we have in chapter 5, verse 1. This first engagement with crying, I would argue, is quite different than the next one. And it's really important. This, this is really going to set the tone. This crying is really the only imperative in this whole section. You do have two other imperatives, and they're both meant to grab our attention. There's the come now, 
And then later the behold, both of them at the beginning of the, the two indictments, again, to grab your attention. This is the imperative that's requiring action, though. So the first engagement with crying, again, is quite different than the next one. One being the commanded cries of the wicked, and the other the condemning cries of the abused. And it's a curious command, is it not? To, for James to say, cry, cry, I want you to weep. Well, that's what he's telling them. He's commanding the rich to cry. And that's exactly what he's doing here when he states, come now, you rich, cry, howling of your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, there are only three times that persons are commanded to weep in the New Testament. Two of them are here in James. We've already seen one of them, chapter 4, verse 9 where James commanded weeping in a context of being broken while in a state of repentance. Remember, that's where he's addressing believers in a restorative care. Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That was not to be the, 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 the standard disposition. It's not that we walk through life and glad it's, it's raining so that people don't notice I'm crying all the time. It's not that matter. It's a matter of being broken and humbled over sin. There's a pattern in times for that. The second time James issues this command is here, and it's in a like manner to the only other time this command is expressed in the New Testament. It's different than his engagement to the believers, but it's very similar, I would argue, to the one other time that, Jesus, or that anyone's commanded to cry. And it comes by Jesus. He commands others to cry. It comes in Luke chapter 23, where Jesus is speaking to the women, to the women who are weeping for him at his crucifixion and tells them to weep instead for themselves and their children for the forthcoming judgment. And following him was a large multitude of the peoples and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop crying for me, but cry for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. This is a command to cry in view of imminent judgment. And James couples this command to cry with howling, which dramatically fills out the terrible nature of what's being expressed here. This is a, you can imagine, a shrieking out in pain, but not simply a pain from their great losses, but of a righteous condemnation that they cannot bear up under. And if you've lived or walked long enough or just had enough experiences, you've probably at some point in time, heard this and heard a like expression of this. Uh, the one that stands out to me most uh, was an experience I had when I was um, an investigator responding to an unattended death at a home. It was nothing malicious, but death had come to a man unexpectedly, and his loved ones arrived while I was there on scene, and it was jarring. They, 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 they got there, they realized the weight of what had happened, that this person was gone, that they had passed. They were no longer present in this natural life. Their body was there, but their spirit had left. And they just began wailing out. And it was just a pure overcome with emotion to the point where it wasn't a lack of compassion, but it, so, it kind of jarred me to the point my thankfully I didn't express this because it wasn't an intended lack of compassion. I just thought, don't they know people die? Like it was just so overwhelming that this wailing out. And it was a spontaneous reaction to loss. But here James is commanding those who have pursued the riches of men and in such cultivated sin upon sin to join that chorus of terrible pain. And he says, you, you righteous unbelievers who have pursued the things of man at the expense of the things of God, cry out, cry out because judgment is coming. It will visit you. You will not be able to bear it bear under it. But even here, you can see James's pastoral care being expressed. As it was only a few short verses ago that he called upon us to cry out too. Cry out in repentance that you might know the sweet restoration of life. And now we hear him in a very different manner command the wicked to cry out. Cry out because judgment is coming. And seeing the second expression here as pastoral care might be challenging for some of us, but remember James's readers were primarily, if not exclusively, Jewish believers. And they were all but certainly would have had a, a flood of uh, engagements coming to mind or a flood of texts coming to mind. So I, I certainly had an experience that came to mind, but they would have likely been drawing from something else, not just experiences, but also thinking about the nature and the language of the prophets 
because James is speaking very much like a prophet here. They would have remembered the goodness of God's justice and the judgment of the wicked. Perhaps recalling some of the the following passages. There's dozens I'm sure you could draw from, but here's a few. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor, and it is revealed to them from the land of Cyprus. Isaiah 23, 1. For this I gird myself with sackcloth, lament and wail, for the burning anger of Yahweh has not turned back from us. Jeremiah 4, 8. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll yourselves in ashes, you masters of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your scatterings are being fulfilled, and you will fall like a desirable vessel. Jeremiah 25, 34. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field perishes. Joel 1, 11. Wail, O inhabitants of the, of, of the mortar, for the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. Zephaniah 1.1 1, 1. And while it might be morbid to find some bubbly joy in such engagements, it is nevertheless proper to find encouragement to hear God's righteousness prevail. Even at times, painfully prevail. Because it's reflecting the fact that there is a just God and He will accomplish His purposes and He will deal with sin. And so it is here to the wicked rich, cry, howling over your miseries which are coming upon you. And now comes the accusation of their wicked indulgences. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. You're being condemned for your gross abundance. Your gross abundance that is crumbling all around you. And again, that might sound peculiar at first, as though we are having a fit toward those who have enjoyed a generous wealth of abundance in this life. But it's not the abundance that's being condemned. It's how it was secured, which is more directly addressed in the second half, and how it's being used, which is more the concern here. You have, and you have a morbid surplus, riches that are rotting, clothes that are being consumed, and precious treasures that are diminishing. But what is the offense? Well, let, remi- let me remind you of an account that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 16. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. But a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here, over from here to you are not able and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I'm asking you, Father, that you send to him, him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, so they may also not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, to be clear, the rich man was not condemned for being rich, and he's not simply experiencing some exchange of roles. Well, hey, you, you had yours, now it's Lazarus' turn to have his, and so it's a little game of role reversal. No, it's plain that he did not repent by submitting in faith to the testimony of the Scriptures. He was not justified before God and therefore died in his sins. We know this not because, only because of the, the testimony or the totality of the testimony of the Scriptures, But pay attention to this text even here. Because right here he's petitioning for his own brothers to be delivered from his fate by way of their repentance. 
And he concludes that someone coming back from the dead will persuade them. This is corrected by the statement that the testimony of the scriptures are sufficient, a testimony that must be believed. And so you have a matter of repentance, faith, faith rooted in the scriptures. Now that being established, how was he described though? As a man living in profound luxury, hoarding his fortunes in food, hoarding his fortunes in clothing, hoarding his fortunes in comfort, while another man's body wilted away before him. And we've seen this work itself out in James, haven't we? James chapter 1, verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And then later in chapter 2, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? The very nature of the corroding and uh, failing possessions of these persons declares that they had and that they had an abundance, an abundance not submitted to service to God or His purposes. They have made themselves rich in this world, and their riches have gone the very way that the riches of this world go. They diminish and they fail. These persons had no regard for Jesus' clear words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth neither excuse me, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. So this accumulation of treasure made plain where their hearts were, and that which they prize so dearly is feeding the wailing of their cries as it slowly crumbles before them. And with this comes the first indictment. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. So their great wealth has failed. And the crumbling of their empire bears an undisputed testimony of their guilt. But in a prophetic-like turn here, it not only testifies against them, it consumes them. The very things that they have wickedly invested in are themselves tools of their own punitive demise. And this brings us to our first closing rebuke. You have stored up such treasures in the last days now, to appreciate the nature of this rebuke, let's take a look back at two passages that we've already drawn from today, Luke chapter 12 and Matthew 6. And as you recall, the parable from Luke 12 concluded with an arrogant presumption followed by a firm rebuke. Then he said, this is what I will do. Remember that I will, I will, I will. This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And now note the concluding statement. So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's really the key issue here with how we understand this matter. It's not socioeconomic problems. This is a matter of treasure principles here. So again, so is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Stores up treasure for himself. That should sound very familiar now. Should, because it's the same term that we saw used twice in Matthew chapter 6. To, yeah, here we have Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't store up treasures. Same term. Where moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. But, same term. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. So, James's closing rebuke is quite clear. You've stored up such treasures in the last days. An act of arrogant presumption and utter foolishness. Because while it may or may not be their last days, in view of God's purposes... These are the last days, and judgment is coming. So what a gross demonstration of arrogant ignorance. The ship is going down, and rather than humbly petitioning for a spot on the raft, they're raiding rooms for jewelry and fancy adornments, items that will witness to their offenses and weigh them to the bottom of the ocean in judgment. And now we come to their second indictment. So the property indictment, and now the people or persons indictment. 
an indictment secured by way of their offense toward persons. An indictment that once more begins with crying, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, that which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, whereas the offenders cry out in loss and in judgment, here their victims withheld pay cries out against them, as do their victims themselves. And here we have a simple, rather a simple stage to set for us. These wealthy persons have employed others who were in need of work, and um, an arrangement that implicitly, if not explicitly, includes the exchange of payment for labor. That was understood relationship between employer-employee. There's a basic fundamental principle here. The worker is worthy or deserves his wages, a principle that happens to be expressed in the context of ministry because it's so well and plainly established in the broader application of work. So we see in Matthew 10, in sending out his disciples in a special ministry outing, Jesus said to them, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Basic foundational principle. And we have, in keeping with the realism that accompanies the telling of a parable, Jesus includes the following elements in the parable of the landowner and his day laborers. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. That's what you did. They worked all day. They get paid at the end of the day. That's the natural conclusion, the natural arrangement and agreement. And again, speaking to a a precise context of ministry, we see an implicit principle that carries over even to the care of creatures. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And if, if, we were, um, and if we were wanting more than just general principles, we could turn our attention to what does the law prescribe? Because remember, this is a primarily Jewish context here. What does the law prescribe for Israel? So not just anecdotal, not just by reference, not just by culture. What does the law require? Well, a well-established chapter that James is drawn from. Remember Leviticus 19? We've seen it a number of times. He's going to draw from it again. Leviticus 19, he states, or states, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him, the wages of a hired man shall not remain with you overnight until morning. And then we go on to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You shall not oppress a hired person who is afflicted and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who is in your land within your gates. You shall give him his wages on the day before the sun goes down, for he is, for he is afflicted and sets his soul on it, so that he will not cry against you to Yahweh, and it becomes sin in you. So there's no ambiguity here regarding the nature of the offense. The employer has wickedly withheld what is rightfully due his employee, further enriching himself by defrauding others. And the response is a crying out. And while we might reasonably expect the defrauded employee to, to cry out, we first see something rather interesting here. The withheld pay cries out. This inanimate and seemingly neutral component within an offense between two persons itself cries out. And we have something of this nature before. Maybe you think of something from early in Genesis. The very blood of Abel cried out on account of the injustice done to him. The inanimate, the voiceless, as it were, cries out to God that an injustice has been done. And such is a powerful picture of how the Lord views the profane nature of injustices toward others, notably the weak and needy, and certainly toward the righteous. It's not just, well, you know, business is business. The Lord looks, and he will judge these things. And the laborer then joins this course of crying out to God. These workers who are most likely day laborers, effectively working each day for that day's needs, more challenging than working paycheck to paycheck. This was basically an hour-to-hour, day-to-day kind of employment. They knew what it was like to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Because it was every day they would petition, and every day they'd have to trust him for that. And when such provisions should come from the one that they labored for and is withheld, they cry out. And the outcries of those who did the harvesting have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. And perhaps this reminds you of another crying out 
that is reminiscent of the prior experiences of abused laborers. In Exodus chapter 2, we read, Now it happened in the course of of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, Exodus 3, And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. And again, Exodus 6, Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. They cried and were heard. They were heard by the Lord of Sabbath, Sabbath, the Greek equivalent to the consistently used Hebrew title, the Lord of hosts. The magnificent and powerfully sovereign Lord is the Lord of hosts, and he has heard these cries of injustice Their cries have reached his ears, and he will act. And with this now comes their second accusation of wicked indulgences. Those who have withheld, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence. Now, again, being of means or even having significant wealth does not appear to be the issue so much as the self-indulgence that marked this pattern of life. It's quite literally the language is you, you, you've so lived softly. You're, you're so cushioned and comfortable at the expense of how you ought to engage and treat and care for others. This soft living, as it were, and, this, and with this, tell me, what is the, the point of relation or understanding in such a person's in the words of Jesus? Well, it doesn't work, does it? Not with what Jesus has commanded and how they've been described. And I would argue that his preciously, Jesus' preciously encouraging words would be effectively gibberish to them. They would have no point of relation or understanding regarding storing up one's treasures in heaven because they're having a soft, comfortable, luxurious, self-indulgent life now. So again, it wasn't that Lazarus, excuse me, his counterpart, the rich man, well, you know, Lazarus had a bad go at it, so you need a good go at it. It was the nature of that morbidly wicked, self-indulgent, no view to God, no view of treasures in heaven life. Because they not only have, but they have an abundance. They don't only have an abundance, they have a gluttonous abundance. And they not only have a gluttonous abundance, they have a gluttonous abundance that they have defrauded from others. And with this, we have such a profane contrast the workers' wages are withheld, and yet, the, and yet he, the rich, are living in luxury and self-indulgence. And with this, we're reminded of a well-established pattern forged throughout this letter. And we wisdom. Remember, wisdom's been our companion all throughout, our friend throughout this letter. And what would wisdom say? Well, they would say, the wisdom would say that this, this is the wisdom from below which is utterly prideful and self-oriented, self-seeking. It prioritizes comfort over care and always self over others, and such is the course of the rich of this world. Their wisdom will never exceed that of the wisdom from below. And such matters press us to the second indictment here. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The morbid self-indulgence and ever-vigilant quest for comfort and personal satisfaction has served to fatten up the offender. They have consumed and consumed until they have made themselves ready for slaughter. And herein is the irony of their treasure consuming them, as it is their treasures that have prepared them for consumption. So their treasures have fattened them, and their treasures will consume them. And with this, James gives his closing rebuke. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. The profane contrast continue now to accumulate here. They have riches and do not share with those in need. They have resources and withhold rightful payment of their workers. They have an abundance of luxury and care nothing of others. And they have a means of influencing justice, and yet they do so to murder. They, the guilty, manipulate that which is to hold others to an account so they might insulate their self-serving satisfactions. Now, this language of condemnation here plainly lends itself to the accusation of a judicial killing, either actively or passively, basically using the justice system, the courts, to have someone unjustly put to death. Jesus being uh, tried before Pilate and crucified without cause would plainly be an active expression of a judicial killing. No grounds. Pilate's even saying, uh, 
how, why? I have no legal foundation, and yet they used the exercising, the manipulation of the courts, as it were, to take life. On the other hand, a stripping a worker of a worker of his resources and means is a more passive expression of murder, as he cannot provide for himself and or others and will in time suffer unto death. But we saw this as far back as chapter 2, haven't we? Chapter 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Why? Because they have enriched and engorged themselves in this natural life and rather than use their abundance and service to others, they weaponize the simple expressions of man to maintain justice among themselves. If they cannot have, they do not figuratively murder as, as was rebuked with the unbelieving community. No, they just murder. And here, perhaps you're remembering Naboth's murder. In 1 Kings we read, So Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in the city. And she wrote in the letters saying, Call for a fast and set Naboth at the head of the, table, at the, head of the people and set two vile men before him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him so that he will die setting up a judicial killing, witnesses, trial, death. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which, had, which she had sent them. They called for a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two vile men came in and sat before him. And the vile men testified against him, against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones, and he died. 1 Kings 21, 8-13. So we have a profane judicial murder so that one who already had could have more. But he got more than a vineyard, though, didn't he? He also received a personal visit from Elijah who declared the grotesque nature of his, his and his wife's imminent death, a death that would conclude with the dogs lapping up his blood and consuming her flesh. Judgments of a just and righteous God who is no less just or righteous now and who hears the cries of his people. His people who are here identified as the righteous man. A singular point of reference for the whole creating a clear contrast between the righteous poor and the unrighteous rich. And it is the righteous, the poor, who have been made rich in faith. You remember that chapter 2 verse 5. Has God not chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? who are stated to not resist those who arrogantly, or excuse me, the, they're not resisting the arrogantly ignorant rich who hoard, neglect, defraud, abuse, and kill. They're those who in their innocence are not fighting the wicked, but like their Lord are choosing to entrust themselves to the righteous judge, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did not sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept or continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But, that being said and established, here we need to pause and potentially reconsider this final clause, though. That's a strong possibility. It's a strong possibility that this is the righteous and they don't resist. They don't resist like our Lord didn't resist. They continue to entrusting themselves to a just judge. But there's another possibility, a position that's both grammatically sound and supported by a variety of commentators, and among them is William Varner, who also drew out that James's other use of resist should be considered here as well. And that other use came in chapter 4, verse 6 which states, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed or he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, the term was translated opposed. So as a rhetorical question, James's final closing rebuke would potentially read something like this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. Does God not oppose you? So again, the nature of the grammar and the syntax is of such a way that you can actually see this more as a rhetorical question. If it is, God would be the object of the opposition here, and it would go back to, wait, God opposes. Who does he oppose? He opposes the proud, and now he's opposing the profanely wicked, righteous, or excuse me, unrighteous, um, uh, rich persons. So does, not, does God not oppose you? 
the argument here being not only that this is grammatically sound option, but that it gives the necessarily firm closure that would naturally accompany this judgment-intensive passage, even by drawing back on the severe statement of God's opposition that we've already noted in chapter 4. There, like crying, it was framed with a view to restorative repentance, and in chapter 5, it is exclusively with a view to full, final, and a righteous judgment. The final words being a definitive affirmation to the unrighteously wealthy that God opposes them. Unqualified opposes them. A matter that rather naturally transitions to the forthcoming encouragement. Therefore, in view of God opposing the wicked, in view of their imminent and sure judgment, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You've been oppressed, you've been abused. God opposes them. He will judge them righteously. Therefore, be patient. Be patient to the coming of the Lord. And with him will come judgment. And with this we know come the conclusion. Excuse me. And with this we now um, recognize that as the book works toward a conclusion that it's going to continue to develop that perseverance and that looking and that entrusting yourself. And so why do I see this as a pastoral engagement? Because he set us up and the prior section with, don't be arrogantly ignorant. Don't go down this path. That's not wisdom. Wisdom would say, be humble in your submission and have a view to God in all your purposes in life. The wicked don't understand that. You can charge them. Don't be arrogantly ignorant, but they love the riches of this world and love them in a a condemning-like way, in a murderous-like way. And for them, there's nothing but judgment. And why is that encouraging? It's not because, ha, they're going to get theirs. No, it's because God is just. And because when his beloved suffers, we know that he hears and he responds. Therefore, be patient. Be patient for the Lord's return. Continue persevering. Continue walking in wisdom. Continue being made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And with this now, we'll also come to a conclusion for this section. And as we do, I want to offer two last matters of encouragement to what I think is really kind of a hard section. There's no reprieve. It's just judgment. The reprieve is that it's good judgment. But again, I think it's very pastoral. But regarding the first, the, the two encouragements, the first encouragement, it's for those who are not in Christ. I presume in good faith that most everybody here is, most everybody probably listening that happens to stumble across this probably is. But I'm going to offer something that James did not offer here a petition for you to repent. He doesn't open that door. And so I'll go ahead and open it from our vantage point to stop tromping through this life as though your conduct had no real consequences. That's what the arrogant rich do. They just go about life as though they're Lord, they're king, and it doesn't really matter. I would encourage you, you need to recognize that your conduct has real consequences. You've become delusional in your comforts. Your pursuit of riches has deafened your ears to Jesus' clear call to secure an enduring treasure, and not that which is temporal, fading, and failing, that which will condemn and consume you. The second encouragement is for those of us who are in Christ and who might still be struggling with what appears to be the, the, the fat and happy and soft living of those who pursue the riches of man. Learn from someone who struggled in a like manner here. If you recall, we've done the work here in Psalm 73 where Asaph expresses a very similar struggle with it looks like the wicked, the rich, and the profane are thriving. Is there resolution? Well, the resolution James gave us is the fact there is a just and righteous judgment. And that that just and righteous judgment will fuel and invigorate our continued perseverance. But let's take a look back to what's a familiar text for you, Psalm 73, and consider again the weight that the righteous bear up under when it seems like others are thriving and pursuing the riches of this world and doing well and even oppressing the righteous. And remember the resolution here. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, For I was envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. Therefore lofty pride is their necklace. 
The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues go through the earth. Therefore his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease, living soft, right? They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and reproved every morning. If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight, in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Here comes the recalibration, right? I fixed my attention on the Lord. I had a, I have a, not I will, but I will if God wills. I have a, a humble disposition of you to God. I'm not pursuing the riches of this world. I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Just like James has told us, right? Very clear, not ambiguous. Surely you set them in slippery places. You caused them to fall to destruction. How they became desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like an animal before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will lead me, and afterward take me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Right? What's he doing? I have a view to eternal treasures and I have a view to God's righteous judgment and that bears me up through these times. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set the Lord Yahweh as my refuge that I may recount all your works." Asaph's resolution is the same that James has provided us. There are very, very challenging experiences in this life and those who have done, they've scorned the counsel, not just the counsel, the commands of our Lord regarding riches and treasures, and they've oppressed the righteous. We've pursued wisdom, we've sought wisdom, we said it's good, and yet along the way here, there's been some people tripping us along the way here, and James has said that's the wickedly rich, not just the rich, the wickedly rich, what are we going to do with it? How do we resolve it? And James just brings the hammer down here and says, there's judgment coming because there's a just and righteous God who sees and who hears. And in view of such things, you, you who are storing up treasures in heaven, persevere. Continue to stay steadfast and faithful, recognizing the Lord will reward. And just like Asaph, okay, points of struggle, recalibrate in truth. And James has given us a very hard not pleasant, not exciting engagement of a rebuke toward the wicked, and yet one of the most pastorally kind things he could have done for us in his calling and preparing us for correct action and then ultimately perseverance. So hopefully, as we finish toward, or as we work toward the finish of the book, we've gotten over the last big hump there. Now it's just a call to perseverance, prayer, restoring one another, being righteous and faithful. But such things are necessary, and it's part of our larger view of God. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, give thanks to God. Not that we're excited about the, the wicked suffering, but we're excited about God who is good in his justice. Lord, we, we come into this natural life, obviously as enemies, enemies of God, hostile to the things of you. And certainly it, it's most natural to, to crave everything this world would have to offer and to do what we can to secure it. But in your mercy, you've drawn us to yourself. You've opened our eyes. You've transformed us. You've freed us from that. And you've, you've shown us a, our, the, our Redeemer who, though rich, became poor, that we might enjoy the riches of his glory. And we heard and we know the exhortations. It wasn't encouragement. It wasn't good counsel. It was what wisdom would cry out that we have to have a view toward the internal, the enduring, the lasting, 
that which doesn't fade or perish or diminish. And But we walk in this world, we walk in a world that very much operates under the, the authority and the wealth of, of others and can be oppressive and can be hurtful, especially when those who are of means are antagonistic to the things of God. And here James has made it very clear that our responsibility is not to be arrogantly ignorant ourselves. We're to have a, a humble view to God. And we're also to persevere. And then sandwiched right between there is the, the reality of a judgment, a righteous, just judgment, a good judgment, a judgment that doesn't have any qualifications to it. The Lord will do right, always has, always will. We think about Naboth and the suffering that was introduced there and how quickly Elijah was sent that this will be answered. This will be answered. And sometimes we look at things and we think, well, is it, it didn't get answered today. Well, help us to have a larger view of things, Lord, to recognize that you will deal justly. And we thank you for James's uh, encouragement in that regard. We thank you that you balance the testimony of wisdom with harder things, harder things that are are good for us to see a champion in our behalf. And so may we, like Asaph, confess to you when we struggle, struggle to have confidence in you, struggle to appreciate your plans and purposes, and then also confess to your goodness to recalibrate our minds with truth. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you to that end and ask that you'd help us to be found faithful and Help us to have a, a loose grip on the things of this world, a loose grip on wealth and treasures. And if you choose to entrust such things to us, then may we remember our riches are toward glory, our riches are toward you, and the other things must quickly and easily pass through our hands. Pass through our hands in service to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.